Hey, City Church family. It's such a joy for me to be able to introduce to you my good friend, Jason Johnson. Uh, Jason was the first guest preacher that ever came to City Church back in our early days. And the uh, flame that he lit in our understanding of caring for orphans, uh, the, the phrase that we often say around here, we aren't all called to do the same thing, but we are all called to do something. That came from Jason all those years ago. And I'm so glad that he's back with us and is going to just continue um, to just uh, ignite our hearts and caring for orphans. And so thank you for being here, Jason and City Church family. You are going to be blessed by hearing from him this morning. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you and Robot Ryan voice, weird, creepy. Uh, it's good to be here with you. And I can't believe it's it was eight years ago. That's wild. We were here. Uh, and if you weren't uh, part of the church prior to being out here, uh, uh, I had the privilege of being with you guys where you, when you were in the school and now here, and I'd like to say congratulations on no longer smelling like a seventh grade boy's locker room on Sunday mornings. And I get it. We planted a church in the, on the north side of Houston uh, many years ago, and we met in schools, and one of our primary goals every Sunday morning during setup was eliminate the smell of like high school boy's gym locker room thing. So I get it, and I'm, I'm glad that you're here, and it's cool to see just the growth and, and uh, what you guys are able to do in this really... Uh, unique space. Very cool. So happy to be here. Uh, a little bit of context. I come to you from College Station, so I always need to throw that disclaimer out. I see a lot of Aggie logos around here, and I understand that for some of you that adds a layer of credibility to me. You don't care what I say from this point on. You're like, I'll do whatever this guy says. And for some of you, that causes you to question the decision-making of your leadership, and why would you let a guy like that be here? I get it. So that's where I am. We live in College Station. And yeah, there's, one, there's always one of you. Uh, but um, I also have to throw this disclaimer out. I get to travel around the country, and it's usually mentioned that I live in College Station. And when I'm in places like, you know, last week, like Alabama, for example, you know, they make, they, they're like, who let you behind enemy lines and all that kind of stuff. And usually there's people that want to come down to me and talk to me about football. The assumption is I live in College Station. I went to A&M. I know about football. The reality is, is I don't know anything about any of that. I don't really follow that. I don't know anything. And so I just want to set you up for if you feel the need to come and talk to me about football, you're going to be very quickly disappointed. And I can see it on the guys' faces when they're trying to, about 10 seconds in, I see it hit them, this guy's got nothing for me. And then it becomes awkward, they're not sure how to get out of the conversation, and I just try to let them off the hook. Hey man, if you want to, I know, you probably, if you want to talk to somebody about football, I'm not your guy, I, I, I free you now. So just walk away. <laughs> And it doesn't have to be awkward, all right? So that's where we come from. And uh, I'll show you a picture of a little more detail of the world I live in. Uh, this is the very, this is not the picture. Are we ready, guys? There we go. So this is an outdated, very outdated family picture. Uh, and one of those family members is actually in the room here making her famous this morning. Uh, but I won't point her out. She's going to be famous anyway on her own, but uh, eventually at some point. But that's my wife there, Emily, in the back. We've been married 20 years. This past June, we met uh, on campus at A&M in Harrington Building. If anybody has ever been in the Harrington Building of, at A&M, we always said that if we have a boy, we'll name him Harrington, but won't call him Harry for obvious reasons. Uh, maybe we would make his middle name Harrington. We ended up not with a boy, and we did all of our girls a favor by not naming them Harry Harrington, right? So... Uh, uh, they don't appreciate that. Maybe one day uh, they will. Uh, so that's Emily. We've been married 20 years. Darby there in the royal blue shirt. Presley in the, the gray tank top. Macy, second from the left. 
sweet, precious Marley there in the front. Uh, and then uh, that's Guiana there on the far left, and I'm holding Jordan and baby Brooklyn there in the middle. And this, this picture is actually so outdated, there's another baby in the mix. And so uh, add another baby to this, not ours, thank God, Guiana's. Uh, but uh, there's another baby here in the mix. And so our journey began about 10 years ago, uh, and we had proven to God and the world that we could keep little girls alive. They were six, four, and two. And so my deal with God was I'll do whatever you want us to do as long as it fits within a very small, manageable, narrow, achievable box that I can totally control. (laughs) Have you ever made those deals with God? And sometimes he's like, no, I'm not making that deal. And sometimes he's like, we'll start there, right? And so we felt like we could handle little girls, and so we had the uh, overwhelming privilege of uh, welcoming Marley into our home when she was just a newborn little girl, uh, and she's now a beautiful 10-year-old, sweet, precious, full of energy and life uh, little girl there down front. And then five years into our journey, um, uh, I felt like, and I'm not sure how he feels, we'll handle this one day in heaven, uh, but I felt like God changed the terms of our original arrangements. And when I expressed that to him, uh, the response I feel like I got was, I actually never agreed to those terms, Jason. Uh, You just kind of tricked yourself into believing I did. And so five years into my, I'll do whatever you want us to do as long as it's manageable and easy thing, uh, he completely changed our trajectory when we became aware of a situation and had the opportunity to bring a young mom with her infant newborn twin girls into our home. And so uh, I quickly kind of went to God and said, wait, 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 wait. My deal was little girls, not little girls, and they're not little girl, but full-grown woman mom in our home. And so I'm not sure how this has happened. I think you have misheard and you've changed the terms. And he said, never agreed to them. Deal with it. This is the new reality, right? And so when my wife becomes aware of situations like this, that's the equivalent of us having prayed about it and talked about it for a long, long, long time. She's very much into home renovations as well, and so uh, anytime she comes to me and says, hey, I've been thinking, uh, I usually follow that up with how much is it going to cost and how long is it going to take me, right? Because when, she's, when she becomes aware of things, uh, my job is to figure out how can we do it. Let's, it's it's going to happen, right? Uh, and so after this mom and her little infant girls move out of our home, she becomes aware of the story of Guiana. And Guiana here, we met when she was 17. She had grown up in foster care her entire life pretty much, and she had then at the time a little baby boy, Jordan, who's one week old, who I'm holding in the picture. Gianna is now 22, Jordan is about five, baby Brooklyn here is about three, and there's another new baby here in the mix. And so Gianna has been a part of the mix of our family, and we've been a part of the mix of her family for the last five years, and it has been a long, difficult, uh, mostly rocky five years with moments of clarity and moments of what felt like breakthrough, and it kind of reminds me on the rare occasion i very, I never really do it anymore, but uh, when I would go and play golf, and I would hit like 120 shots, which if you're, if you don't know golf, that's really bad, right? The goal is as little shots as possible, and I would hit like 120, and 119 of them would be really, really bad, and then the one, like the one that was just perfect, sweet spot, like maybe it's a putt, and you make the putt, and you're like, you know what? literally, legitimately, Tiger Woods could not have made that ball go in that hole any better than I just made that ball go in that hole. There is no possible way for him to do it any better than I just did. And there's those one shots, there's those one or or two or a handful of shots uh, that you hit every once in a while that makes you think, maybe there is actually a golfer inside of me after all, right? 
And then you're reminded of like the 115 that were lost and you're swimming for and you're hunting through the woods for. And that's kind of how our journey has felt since we've met Guiana. Uh, we're just kind of shanking balls all over the place, just kind of doing the best that we can. But every once in a while, when you're on this journey, there's, these, there's just these really sweet shots that remind you it's worth it and remind you that maybe there's something in there that's hard to see on the surface sometimes, but just stick with it. And so our commitment to Guiana through all the ups and the downs, from day one, we told her when she moved in, uh, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with us forever. And she's done everything over the last five years to test that resolve. Understandably, because anyone in her life that has ever said, we love you, we're here for you, we're for you, have ended up being the ones that have hurt her the most. And so she doesn't understand these concepts. And she has tested that and and required that we prove that, and it's been a hard, long journey, but you're stuck with us forever. And so this is kind of the fabric of our lives right now. They don't live with us right now uh, anymore. They did for quite some time, but we are still very much integrated and in communication, uh, and she is not without her struggle. And I'll tell you this. Here's what we've learned since kind of opening our world and our home up, not just to these kiddos, but to the families that these kiddos come from. Uh, is this, is that she's got dreams for her kids just like any of us do. And she's got dreams for her life just like any of us do. As a matter of fact, the similarities between us and her are, are far, far outnumber the differences. And I would say the primary difference is the infrastructure of support that someone like Guiana has grown up with or not with and someone like me has. And so not long ago, my wife came to me uh, around dinner time and said, hey, good news and bad news. I said, this is the world that we, we live in, right? This is every day. Just give it to me, right? And she said, good news is we have money to pay for it. I said, great. What happened now, right? She said, bad news is the car won't, my car won't start. So after dinner, I go and check it, and it ends up being the battery, take the battery up to AutoZone. The guys at AutoZone confirm what I had already. I'm not, I don't know anything about cars either. I know less about cars than I do about football. But when I go to the guys, and I'm like, hey, I think it's the battery, and they test it, and they, they're like, hey, it's the battery. I'm like, I told you. Like, I know what I'm doing here, right? So they say, hey, it's the battery. You need a new battery, a couple hundred bucks for a battery, which I remember, like, they didn't. When did they get so expensive, right? So a couple hundred bucks, take it home, put it back in, car starts fine. I've grown up in a world where when I fall, I don't fall far and I don't fall long at all. In Guiana's world, if she goes to her car without an infrastructure of support and her car doesn't start, the trickle-down effect is unending. It's cascading. When she falls, she falls far and she doesn't stop falling. So in the world of Guiana, without an infrastructure of support, she goes to her car, her car doesn't start. Her car doesn't start, she can't make it to work. She can't make it to work, she gets fired from her job. Gets fired from her job, can't pay her rent. Can't pay her rent, gets kicked out, gets kicked out. X, y. The trickle-down effect is significant. And I find that when we begin to understand that the similarities between what we sometimes consider to be us and them actually far outnumber the differences, it suddenly breaks down the walls between us and them, and we discover that there really is no us and them. It's just all of us together in life doing the best we can with what we have, and all of us need infrastructures of support underneath us. So I'm just going to invite you to consider what that might look like for you 
as we explore uh, some implications of the gospel that many of you are already very keenly aware of, and we're going to see how the implications of that gospel begin to change some of the questions that we ask ourselves, begin to change some of the perspectives that we hold, and some of the places that we actually start when we ask ourselves certain questions. Every once in a while, we come across some pretty cool uh, stories in the news, uh, and there are these bright spots and what is normally a news feed filled with just bad news, right? Uh, and every once in a while, a bright spot pops through, and some of my favorites that pop through are stories of like the, the Good Samaritan story, right? Uh, the, the story of someone that comes across some scene, uh, and they've got to act immediately in order to save someone or rescue someone, and like these superhuman feats of strength. I mean, there's crazy stories out there of people like getting around a car and with superhuman strength, like lifting up a car just enough so that someone can get out from underneath it. Those kinds of stories. And I think we love those kinds of stories because, number one, it's a bright spot in a news feed that's mostly just bad news. But also, number two, because they're inspiring to the point that they cause us to kind of ask ourselves a certain set of questions. One of those questions being, what would I do in a situation like that? How would I respond in a situation like that? What would be my immediate impulse uh, when I came across a situation like that? And uh, I recently uh, came across a story like this out of Southern California, and it involved a burning car and someone that was trapped in the burning car, uh, and one person ran towards it and did something, and another person responded in a different way, uh, and I love how this story plays out. So you guys watch this. Moments before this car went up in flames, the driver was pulled out by a Good Samaritan on his way to lunch at the Bollinger Road shopping plaza. Ram Harut Sunyan says there were dozens of bystanders, but no one stepped up. He's in the white shirt, and you can see him run up to the driver and pull and drag him to safety before paramedics and firefighters arrive. His friend Leo shot this video of the rescue and put it on YouTube. I was pretty surreal once we started. I love it. So one of those uh, Good Samaritan stories. Come across a burning car, someone's trapped in it. They ask Aram some, uh, shortly after, hey, why did you do it? Uh, why did you run towards the burning car? And his very matter-of-fact simple answer was this. No one was and somebody needed to. And I love some of the other players in this story that go unnoticed. Uh, in particular, like the, the guys that are walking by looking, like they already see that Aram has run towards the burning car and pulled the guy out. And so then they also run towards the car. Like, okay, good. Uh, that guy's already doing the hard thing, but I'm going to run in just to make it kind of look like I'm close and I'm in on the action, right? Like I did something. And then my favorite part of the story is the reporter at the end says, his friend Leo stood by and recorded the incident and posted it on YouTube. And I'm all about, like, I'll be Leo in that story. Like, hey, man, there's a burning car. You should go do something about it. But I got you here, and I'm going to post it, and we're going to go viral with this thing, right? We live in a world that is increasingly becoming filled with a bunch of Leos. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming filled with a bunch of bystanders that want to get just close enough to feel like they were a part of something but stay just far enough away where it's safe and convenient for them. And in the meantime, I'll record it and we'll post it on social media. And we watch these stories, and I think we're compelled to kind of consider, uh, what would I do in a situation like this? Would I be the Leo who stands back and moves away and records it? Would I be uh, Aram who runs towards the burning car and pulls the guy out? Or would I be one of the other guys that uh, just kind of just gets a little bit close enough to be in the picture and to be a part of the action, but uh, still stays far enough away to not really have to get my hands dirty? Who would I be and what would I do in a situation 
like that. And I think part of what compels us in stories like this to ask those questions is because this is kind of a script-flipping narrative that we see play out. So if we could just, uh, for a moment, um, not that nothing that we've said so far has been dishonest, right? But if we could just be honest here for a moment, right? This isn't like everything we've said up to this point has been a lie. So if we could just start being honest now, but if we could just kind of say, I'm going to get myself to this place where I'm willing to explore some hard things uh, that might be true for me, uh, and then to consider the implications. And one of the things I think it's important for us to explore when we consider uh, the question of why would we even consider running towards things like burning cars? Why would we move towards hard things? Why would we, uh, uh, why would we not uh, isolate and insulate and avoid and, and, and pursue comfort and convenience uh, uh, rather than move towards something that's hard and difficult and uncertain? And so if we could just be honest for a moment and say, perhaps, perhaps what we need to be aware of is the fact that we live in, in a predominant cultural narrative that, that suggests there's a certain path and a certain trajectory that you should set, set your life on. Uh, and that path and that trajectory has a very clear end point uh, and some, some things along the way that you need to go out of your way to avoid. And so it might go something like this. The goal of your life is to be good and to do good and to make good grades so you can go to a good school like Texas A&M and you can get a good degree and you can get a good job and you can get a good salary and marry a good guy or girl uh, and then live in a good neighborhood and have a few good kids and drive some good cars and take some good vacations and have a really good Instagram feed and then raise a bunch of good kids who repeat that cycle and then have a really good retirement and throughout that journey and along that journey do everything that you possibly can and go to great lengths at all costs to avoid anything that's hard or difficult or uncomfortable, anything that might disrupt that journey towards good comfort and convenience. That seems to be the predominant narrative in which we live, and I think all of us, even in the church, feel that tension. That on one hand, the cultural narrative around me says avoid and isolate and insulate yourself from anything that's hard and difficult and build a life that pretends like none of that exists and that is full of comfort and convenience. But on the other hand, I want my life to count for something. And I recognize that that's going to require some hard and uncomfortable things for me. And I don't know how to reconcile those two things together. And I think the gospel helps us reconcile those two things together. And it begins to to cause us to ask ourselves an entirely different set of questions. A guy named Tim Keller, who's a well-known uh, pastor and writer and thinker, uh, says that in order for us to really understand um, the implications of the gospel narrative in our lives, we have to be keenly aware of and familiar with the cultural narrative around us. And we've got to take the cultural narrative around us and pair it up against the gospel narrative within us, and something's got to give. Something's got to give. The cultural narrative around us says avoid, isolate, and insulate. And the gospel narrative says something entirely different. And something's got to give. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we see this beautiful uh, articulation of that gospel narrative and the implications in our own lives. And so if you were to come to me and say, Jason, imagine this. You're stranded on a desert island. And I'd say, great, when do we go? Like, tonight? Now? Let's go. And you say, no, no, no. You've been involved in a shipwreck, and everything's been destroyed, including most of your Bible, but you've only got a few verses that have been salvaged. What verses would you want those to be? And I would make a pretty strong argument for these. 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, lay out for us kind of the holistic perspective and view of the gospel, uh, unpack for us the implications in our own lives, the impact it has on our own lives, and then the implications in terms of how we then live that out and demonstrate that. So we're going to just walk verse by verse through this. We're going to pick it apart, and we're going to see that it begins to change the questions that we ask ourselves. As the cultural narrative around us and the gospel narrative within us come in conflict with one another, something's got to give. And it's going to change the questions that we ask. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law. That phrase, when the fullness of time had come, literally means at just the right time. And so in essence, it's saying at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, or at just the right time, Jesus was born. This is my favorite Christmas verse that I never hear preached at Christmas. There's no magi, there's no shepherds, there's no angels, there's no stars, but this is Christmas. At just the right time, Jesus was born. That's it. Not by accident. It wasn't uh, by chance. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't unplanned. For some reason, God said at this moment, right now, in all of the course of human history and eternity and time, this is the time. At just the right time, Jesus entered into our story. He was born of a woman. That phrase, born under the law, carries these connotations of condemnation, that he was born under the weight of a law and a, condemn- and a condemnation that would ultimately crush him. Now, we don't talk about that at Christmas because that is not a very happy Christmas Eve service message, right? That is a Good Friday Easter message, and so we generally reserve that for that time. However, it's true all of the time, and Jesus was clear. He said, I have come into this world to lay my life down. I have come into this world to give my life as a ransom. Jesus was very clear that I have entered into this world in order to die for this world. That's his ministry. And he was very clear about that from the very beginning. So if you're in a seminary class, the professor might say, this is what we call the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation. Uh, And so one of the ways for me uh, that's helpful to take big, kind of complex, heady uh, ideas uh, and, and make them simple is to look around life and say, how does this actually apply and play itself out in real life? And so here's how I understand the doctrine of incarnation. Um, <clears throat> there's kind of a running joke between, between my wife and I where we're always like, we need to branch out, we need to try new things, and then we just stick with all that we know and we do the same things over and over again, in part because all of our lives <clears throat> every day are filled with many, many, many decisions and any area of life that we can minimize decisions, let's do that. And so one of the areas in life that we've done that is where we're going to eat, when we're going to eat somewhere, okay? We always end up at the same place or the same type of place despite our best efforts to branch out. We should try this new place. We should try this new place. And then inevitably, always, it ends up being torchies and we get the same tacos and we sit in the same booth because there's just comfort in the same, right? As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, we were driving across town talking about where are we going to go eat, kind of laughing, going, ha-ha, like, it, like it's actually going to change. Where are we going to go eat? Maybe we'll try this, maybe we'll try this, maybe we'll try this. Uh, and I think we blacked out for a moment, and then when we came to, the car had pulled itself into the Torchies parking lot and parked itself, and it was clear. So you go to places like Torchies, you go to Tex-Mex restaurants, and at those places you can order things like queso con carne or chili con carne, okay? Uh, and that literally means with meat or with beef. And it's the same root word that is tied to the root word that we find uh, in the word incarnation or incarnate. 
It's this idea that it's God with meat on. It's God with beef on, okay? So if eating queso at Torchy's wasn't already a spiritual enough experience, we've just elevated the level of spirituality because it reminds you of these beautiful truths of, of Christmas and of the gospel, that God steps into our story wraps himself up in our humanity, literally takes on human flesh, literally wraps himself up in the brokenness of our story, is carried to the cross by our brokenness, is broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel of God saying, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. This is not the gospel. God's saying, I see you where you are, and it is a mess. And I want nothing to do with that. And so if you want to be where I am, you need to get your act together and clean yourself up. And then maybe one day you can work your way to where I am. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God saying, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you. I'm going to step into your story. I'm going to wrap myself up in your humanity. I'm going to be broken by your brokenness so that you don't have to be broken anymore. This is what we raise our hands in celebration to. We raise our hands in celebration to a God who has seen our brokenness and moved towards it and entered into it. And because we raise our hands in celebration to a God that has moved towards our brokenness and was broken by our brokenness, we refuse to be the kind of people and the kind of church that then use those same hands to push the brokenness of other people away. Because there is a serious disconnect between raising our hands in worship to a God that has done this for us and then using those same hands to push the hard and broken of others away. And we refuse to be those kinds of people. And we refuse to be that kind of church. And so something's got to give. Something's got to give. Matthew chapter 1, we see our Christmas verse, that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. We read that pretty quickly and can fly by that. But the implications of this idea and that cultural context were just crazy out of this world. For them to consider that a holy, righteous God would be with us just blew any kind of paradigm of what they understood God to be. Why would a holy God enter into the mess of our story? That's why people struggled so significantly when it actually happened to actually believe that it was true. This is just so far outside of anything that I could comprehend. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase, made his dwelling among us, literally means tabernacled among us. Or another way to say it, it could be, uh, he built a home among us. Like there's this sense in which he moved into our brokenness and he, he established himself there. There's, he, he stayed. There's nothing wrong with service projects. Those can be great. But what we find is that Jesus isn't using us as a service project. Like, Jesus isn't like, hey, God, I want to sign up for the Saturday morning service project. I'm going to go and serve those broken people, uh, and then I'm going to get back in time for, like, the Aggie game that starts at 1, right? Like, no, this is like, hey, I'm going to move into their brokenness, and I'm going to construct a home there, and I'm staying. They're stuck with me forever, is what God says. You are stuck with me forever, uh, and there's nothing you can ever do to change that. It's this complete reorientation of life. That when we move in and we stay, everything changes. We learn an entirely new neighborhood and an entirely new way of getting around. We have an entirely new reference point to our lives. 
Everything changes. This idea of reference points is, is fascinating. Uh, every once in a while, I'll come home, <clears throat> and um, there'll be like a dead bug that's dead, clearly dead, not moving, with a small glass bowl on top, and then a larger glass bowl on top of that one, and then a larger glass bowl on top of that one, and they have to be glass so that they can see through to make sure the dead bug hasn't escaped, right? Even though there's literally no possibility of escape. Uh, and I'll come home, and they'll say, hey, can you take care of that? We saved that for you, right? Uh, and I will go, and I will remove the dead bug and, you know, uh, clean up. Uh, and it's fascinating to me. I wonder, how long has that been there? And, like, how long during the day have you guys been living in reference to this thing, right? It's this, it's this new reference point of the day through which all of life will be lived around. We're going to make sure we walk far enough away from it, don't get too close to it. This is the idea of reference point, that Jesus moves in, and he builds a home there and changes the entire reference point for everything. Okay? And he stays. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, says it this way. He says, compassion is not a bending toward the underprivileged from a privileged position. It's not a reaching out from on high to those who are less fortunate below. It's not a gesture of sympathy or pity for those who fail to make it in the upward pull. And I love this phrase. On the contrary, compassion means going directly to those people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. What a great statement. Going directly to those people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Tabernacling there. Establishing an entirely new reference point for life there. The cultural narrative says, when you come across those places where suffering is most acute, avoid isolate, and insulate. And the gospel begins to change the narrative by which we live and establish entirely new reference points for us. It begins to help us see that, that when we come across those places where suffering is most acute, we don't uh, move away, but we move towards, and we build a home there, and everything changes. Everything changes. And so what we find in the gospel is this idea that God sees hard places and broken people and moves towards them and not away from them. This is about as succinct as I can possibly uh, summarize all the fullness of the gospel in all the, the story arc of all of Scripture. You're hard-pressed to read uh, a few pages of Scripture from the beginning to the end and not come across an example where this is true. That God constantly and always is moving towards and not away the hardest places and the most broken of people. It's just what he does. It's what he does. So when he does this for us, we're going to find Paul begins to unpack the implications in our own lives. What, what difference does this make in our lives? <clears throat> and then how does it change the questions and the reference points through which we live and demonstrate this through our lives? And so in verse 5, he starts to talk about our past. He says, look, Jesus was born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. Were under the law, past tense. And notice the play on words. Jesus was born under the law, and we were under the law. Jesus was entered into uh, our brokenness and took the weight of our condemnation on himself in order to free us out from underneath him. That he met us exactly where we were, and he took the weight of that condemnation off of us, and we have been redeemed out from underneath it. Outside of Jesus, we were crushed under the weight of a condemnation that we could not bear, and Jesus took all of that on himself and said, I am broken by your brokenness so that you don't have to be broken anymore. 
And so the first thing that changes when Jesus steps into our story is our past. Our past has been redeemed. Our past has been redeemed. Notice it doesn't say that our past has been forgotten. Our past has been erased. There is now no in memory at all of any past. Okay? And I, I know many of us wish that that was the case. That there is grief and trauma. There are things we've done and things done to us in our past that we would all just be okay with forgetting and pretending like it never happened. But for some reason, that's not what God does. God has the power and the ability to just erase it all as if it never happened and let's move on. But for some reason, he doesn't. And I think it's important for us to camp out on why, perhaps why he does not. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because we were once crushed under the weight of that condemnation, and Jesus took that and was crushed by it for us so that we don't have to be crushed anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation. What does that mean? I think it means that our past is no longer a source of condemnation. It's now a platform of celebration. That we can look back on our, our, our life outside of Jesus and we're no longer condemned by it. We're no longer proven guilty by it. We're no longer uh, pulled down by it. We're no longer defined by it. We're actually compelled by it because we can say, wow, look at what Jesus has done. I was once dead and now I'm alive. I was once blind and now I can see. It's no longer a source of condemnation. It's now a platform of celebration. Could he have just erased all memory of it? Yes. But instead, what he chooses to do is give us the capacity through the gospel to change our relationship with our past. Some of us have very dysfunctional relationships with our past because they have been hard and heavy and difficult, full of trauma, things we've done, things done to us. And what the gospel offers is the ability for you to have a new redeemed relationship with your past. And so not long after Guiana moved into our home, it was one of those days where the goal of the day is just keep every kid alive and is everyone home? Did everyone eat anything today, even if it was like a Pop-Tart and a Sprite, right? Great, you did? Wonderful. Success, right? We're in our room, it's late at night, we're probably numbing out to like Chip and Jojo or something, and Guiana knocks on our door and she asks the three-word question uh, that uh, nothing small or short ever follows. And the question is, can we talk, right? Man, if there was any night in the world that we cannot talk, it's tonight. But sure, come on in. And she's, we say, hey, what's on your mind? And she says, hey, I'm starting to think about what I want to be, what I want to do. I want to get my GED and maybe go into uh, get my social work degree and become a social worker. I want to be a caseworker for kids in foster care because all I ever had was bad ones and these kids deserve good ones. We said, Ghana, how, how horrible is it that the job even exists? If we could just call that out. But how beautiful would it be for you to be the one to walk into the room, look a kid in the eye who's just had one of the worst days of their life, and be able to say to them, I am your story, and you are mine, and you're stuck with me forever. Like, I, I'm walking with you through this. What struck us that night was a number of things, but one in particular was that Guiana was beginning to dream about the future, not in spite of her past, but because of her past. Hey, I've had a really horrible life. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's a way for me to actually use that for good moving forward. And we'd say to that, yes. Part of the reason that we move towards and step into the lives of vulnerable children and families is to be able to participate with them in the renewal of their relationship with their past. 
and to say it doesn't always have to be like this. It doesn't always have to. In verse 6, Paul continues. He talks about our present. He says, now you've been given the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God has, has given you the ability to refer to God and to cry out to God as Abba, Father. So the Spirit now in us, present reality, has given us the ability to refer to God and relate to God in an entirely new way. That he, no long, he, he is not just our Father, but he's also Abba. And that, that phrase carries some, a sense, a connotation of approachability and intimacy and affection. And so it's the difference between my girls calling me daddy, which they call me daddy. Uh, but like my teenage girls, I notice when they're around friends, they may call me dad, right? Uh, and then I will correct them. I'll gently correct them. Uh, my name is not dad. My name is daddy, even if your friends are around kind of thing, right? So I'm going to ride the daddy train as long as I can. Uh, <clears throat> It doesn't make me any less of their father. I'm, I'm still father. I'm the only guy in the house. But what's, most, what's more important for me right now for my girls to understand is that I'm daddy. And you get that. There's a sense of approachability and security and safety there. And I think what Paul is doing is he's saying outside of Jesus, our past was full of condemnation, but all of that has been taken off of us. And everything has now changed about our past. And that has impacted how we live in our present reality that we can live with, with a sense of security and safety. We don't need to worry about what God thinks of us. Uh, we don't need to worry if he's upset or disappointed or embarrassed by us. All of that has been taken care of on the back of Jesus, and so we can come to him with anything and everything, knowing exactly how he's going to respond to us, like a good dad would. You know, for a person like Iana, who's grown up in survival mode her entire life, every day is all about survival and it's about scarcity, and it's about tyranny of the urgent. I do whatever I have to do to survive today with no thought of tomorrow. And part of the reason that we open ourselves up and we, we become participators with her in this process of living out a new present reality is in part to say you don't have to just survive today. You don't just have to get through today. You can actually rest with a sense of safety and security today. You don't have to fight and claw and scratch your way through. You can live today knowing that you are fully loved and fully accepted and fully taken care of. And then Paul continues in verse 7. He starts to talk about our future. He says our past has been redeemed, our present has been shifted. And then in verse 7, he says something about our future. He says, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. And so when we, when we talk about, or when we look at in Scripture what's to come tomorrow in our future, we see a couple of things play out. The first promise that we see in Scripture about our future is this, is that glory is coming. Glory is coming. So we see verses that say things like, our outward bodies are wasting away, but our inward souls, along with all of creation, are groaning for the glory that will be revealed. Uh, while our present struggles have a certain weight to them, they pale in comparison to the weight of glory that is coming. So what Scripture says. The first promise about our future is that glory is coming. The second promise about our future um, is, is, is not as fun, right? Uh, like it, it's not going to sell a lot of books and fill a lot of church seats, right? It's actually going to empty a lot of them. We don't like this message, but the second promise is so unbelievably crucial to illuminate the beauty of the first promise. So the first promise is glory is coming. And the second promise is this. It's going to be hard. And it's going to become increasingly hard. 
to the degree that I, th- I, think, I think if Jesus was like physically right here and I said, hey, Jesus, can you come up on stage and uh, I have a question to ask you and can you just help us answer this? Uh, and he'd say, sure, Jason, no problem. He'd come up and I'd say, hey, Jesus, um, you, you see the current political and social uh, uh, climate that we currently live in now, right? Uh, he says, yeah, I'm fully aware. I said, does any of this surprise you at all? Does any of this take you off guard, like catch you off guard or kind of cause you to step back and go, whoa, didn't expect this? I I honestly think his answer would be, not at all. As a matter of fact, I told you this was going to happen. Follow me and the world will become increasingly hostile towards you. But I win in the end. Glory is coming. That's our future hope. We don't know what's going to happen in the world tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in in the world next week. But what we do know is that in the end, Jesus wins, and we don't have to be afraid. And so part of the reason that we step into some hard places and we reorient our lives around a new reference point and we participate with those uh, that need infrastructures of support under them is to say it doesn't always have to be like this. And you can live today with, with the security of knowing you are fully loved and cared for, and you don't have to be afraid of tomorrow anymore. You don't have to be afraid of tomorrow. So Guiana coming to our door that, late that night, our bedroom door, and saying, I'm starting to dream about what I want to be when I grow up, that's significant. Because what... what Neuroscience tells us is that trauma destroys the brain's ability to imagine or dream. So let's play it out in this scenario. Let's say a kid has a near-drowning experience, and we pull that kid out of the pool, and we kind of uh, get them all settled and got their breath back, and, uh, and we say, all right, bud, uh, time to jump back in. You ready? That kid's thinking, I can't imagine getting back in that water. Because trauma destroys our ability, our brain's ability to imagine or dream. And then trauma goes so far, it forms these protective barriers around our brain where no longer can we dream or imagine about ever getting back in the water, but it then convinces us, you know what, I don't even like swimming, and I never have. And what we would say to that little boy is, no, you love swimming. I know you do. Trauma's just convinced you that you don't, and you can't imagine ever getting back in that water again. And so for Guiana to knock on our door and say, I'm starting to think about what I want to be, when I grow up, it's evidence that there is, there is healing beginning to take place that is creating in her brain the capacity to actually have a hope for the future. This is why we move towards. And it begins to change a lot of the questions that we ask. Primarily, it changes the question from why would we do this to now in light of what we believe is true in the gospel and in light of what we celebrate The question is no longer, why would we do it? But honestly, why would we not? We tend to start a lot of our conversations with God in this way. We say, hey, God, uh, the answer for me is no until you convince me that it's a yes. And I think what the gospel does is that it flips that scenario and says, what if, what if your answer was first yes until you convince me that it needs to be a no? changes the entire trajectory of how we start into things. The gospel begins to change the questions that we ask ourselves. So the implications on us are clear, but the applications are broad. So here's where we'll we'll end here this morning. What does this look like for us? I would say the implications are clear. We all celebrate the same gospel. 
the applications are full of creativity and diversity to the degree that I believe that uh, they are as unique as each individual person in this room. So not long ago, I was in Kansas City at a large foster parent appreciation dinner, a couple, of, couple hundred foster families in the room, and it was catered by a barbecue restaurant. Uh, and if you've ever been to Kansas City, they talk about two things, two things only, uh, barbecue and Patrick Mahomes. Uh, two things I don't really even care about, like uh, tacos and I don't care about football, right? Uh, but that's what they talk about, and so you just nod and smile in agreement while they do until they discover uh, the, the look on their disappointment on their face when they realize I literally, I can't, I'm sorry guys, I have nothing to contribute to this, right? Uh, but this guy comes up to me afterwards, he looks like a smoke pit, smells like a smoke pit, talks like a smoke pit, like the human version of a, a very large man smoke pit guy. And you know these guys, you've met them, we have them all over Texas, right? So he comes up to me at the end of the dinner and says, hey bud, and to be clear, I hate when people call me Bud, but when like human smoke pit large man calls me Bud, I just go with it. I don't correct him. He says, hey, Bud. I say, yes, sir. He says, I'm not bringing a kid into my home. And in my mind, I'm thinking, thank God, please don't. You're a terrifying person. <laughs> I actually hope you don't have any kids of your own already, right? <laughs> I'm not bringing a kid into my home, but I own the best barbecue restaurant in Kansas City, and that's a bold claim there. And we've told organizations, churches, ministries, anytime there's a foster family function or anytime a family brings a new placement into their home, uh, we're going to be the best barbecue in Kansas City on their doorstep delivered for free. And he said he catered that whole dinner that night for free. So here's a guy who says, I know what I can't do, and I don't feel bad about it at all. Because I know what I can do, and what I can do, I can do really, really well. And to that I say Amen. The implications are clear. The applications are broad. Romans 12 says that we are members of one another. We, we are all uh, um, uh, more closely uh, dependent and interdependent upon one another. And we have gifts that are different by the grace given to us. So let us use them. We're all members of one another, but we don't have the same function. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says that we're ears, eyes, hands, feet, toes. It's the diversity of the body of Christ coming together and saying, you be the best arm you can be, and you be the best ear you can be, and you be the best eye you can be. And when we come together, we make a pretty strong body. And so let me put this challenge, and then we need to be done. Some of you already know what your part of the body is. Uh, and you need to stop asking God for clarity. You, as a matter of fact, God may have stopped, like, having that conversation with you a long time ago. If I told my girls, clean your room, they'd say, okay, we get it, clean our room. Ten minutes later, they come back and say, just to be clear, what do you want us to do? Clean your room. What's so hard about that, right? Uh, okay, I, actually, we're going we're gonna to start a Bible study, and it's going to be a 10-week study exploring the concepts of room cleaning and what it would actually look like if we cleaned our room. Like, well, that's weird, but all right, do what you got to do. Uh, and then after that, they come and say, hey, we're still not entirely clear and I'm going, what's, I, I've been, I don't understand what more you need from me. So we're going to go to this conference, and it's going to be a three-day conference full of potential room cleaners. And we're going to talk about just what it might look like if we actually go home to our, our, our communities and clean our room. And I go, no, stop. Like, stop with the craziness, right? I've been clear, and you know what I want you to do. And I think maybe God is up there sometimes going, stop asking me about it. I've been clear. And it changes our prayer now from instead of, God, give me clarity, it's God, give me courage. And that's an entirely different prayer. Some of you need to open your homes. You need to start down that path, and you know who you are, and you don't need more clarity. You need more courage. 
Some of you, for the love of God and all children, don't open your home, please. <laughs> you know who you are, okay? That doesn't mean there's not a place for you. It could look like families bringing children into their home and a bunch of you wrapping around them in a big circle, just providing tangible support and bringing meals and, and helping with donations and supplies. I think we've got a, a, a graphic to show you. And this is what it looks like. Just a bunch of people saying, I, I'm a barbecue guy. And here's my thing, and here's my thing, and here's how I can participate in this. And to that we say yes. So we'll go back. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. And we believe everyone can do something. And the gospel changes our question from do I even have something to what's my something in this? Give me the clarity I need to know that and the courage I need to do it. Let me pray for us. So, Father, first and foremost, we just ask that the gospel would continue to be deeply ingrained in every fabric of who we are, that we would become increasingly deep, 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 deep celebrators of the truth of what you've done for us, and it would change everything about who we are, past, present, and future. And then we ask, Father, that you would give us the clarity and the courage that we need to not only celebrate that, but to demonstrate that well. So we ask that your spirit would do what only your spirit could do. Strengthen us, empower us, and move us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.